0: Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our host, Dr. Lynn Kohick, is speaking with Dr. Karin Reeder. Karin is professor of New Testament and co-coordinator of gender studies at Westmont College. Karin's research and writing circles around issues of gender and violence. Her forthcoming book, The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Hashtag Church 2, will be published by IVP Academic in February of 2022.
1: Hi, Karin. It's so nice to see you, and I'm so glad that you're joining us on the Alabaster Jar. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm glad to be here.
1: Yes, well, and I know this is a special, uh, you you are being especially gracious because you are on sabbatical and that that is like this priceless time of being able to get away and think and write so
2: yes yeah it's been a wonderful few months so far to be able to sink into research um, i am so sorry there's a combine driving by right now i don't know if you can hear that
1: but i'm spending you're, on, you're not in westmont anymore I'm not in uh, Karn, where are you calling us from?
2: um, I am in central Illinois on my parents' farm, um, just enjoying the harvest and enjoying some time with family as well as time for research and writing.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. That's great. Well, we want to especially spend some time talking about your new book from IVP. It'll be coming out in a couple of months, the Samaritan woman's story, reconsidering John four after the hashtag church two movement. And, um, Yeah, boy, I I have always been fascinated by the Samaritan woman's story. And you talk about how really from 2017, there was this wave of credible sexual allegations that were being brought um, within the church and also in the wider society, right? And um, we all kind of went through that. You talk about how it made you angry. You're saying, you know, how, how did the church get here? How were they able to, to accept this, this evil? Can you talk a little bit about that place you were in and then how that led you uh, to working on this book? Yeah, absolutely. I
2: was stunned and horrified watching the reports come out um, as particularly with the hashtag Church Too, more and more women felt empowered to share their own stories. Um I was also stunned and horrified as I watched church leaders and congregations react in ways that often furthered the abuse rather than offering a solution to the problem. Um, and I wanted to do something productive with my anger at the situation. Um, I do think that righteous anger is godly, but I also think we need to channel that towards something that will help, um, that can contribute towards a meaningful response And so as a biblical scholar, I felt a little stimmied there. I didn't feel I could speak explicitly um, into the situation until I started really thinking about the ways we teach the Bible in churches, in Bible studies, in Sunday school even. Um, And that led me back to the Samaritan woman's story. Um, Of course, addressing the issue of sexual abuse in Christian communities is a really sticky issue. It involves a lot of different areas, and there are different needs to address. But I do think that addressing how we teach the Bible should be one of those core core concerns in responding to the crisis of abuse.
1: Well, and you have looked at this even before in your earlier work, The Enemy in the Household, Family Violence and Deuteronomy and Beyond, that came out in 2012. Um, and where you, you look at how does the Bible handle um, family violence? What what did you discover in that research? And then how has that helped you as you've uh, explored the story of the Samaritan woman?
2: Yeah, that book, I was looking at the three laws in Deuteronomy that implicate family members in the execution of other family members. And as you read these texts, I remember reading them the first time and thinking, "What on earth is going on here? How do we understand these texts and even make use of them as the voice of God to the church?" So my book was really my opportunity to explore those issues for myself and think through the literary context, the cultural context, and the moral questions that texts like that raise. Uh, One of the laws deals with the case of a young woman who is accused of by her new husband of not being a virgin at the time of her marriage. So that law, it's in Deuteronomy 22. It combines issues of gender, women's identity and their place in society, um, sexuality and also social power dynamics. And they all get connected explicitly within that one text. And it's a text that I think has had serious implications for people through time, for women through time. And so my research has always circled around these concepts. And, and actually, Lynn, um, I think that a class with you I had as a master's student was really the first class that I got to dig into some of these issues and the ways that they connect. and um, yeah so I think that first book really helped me form some of my understandings of women, gender, sexuality, and power um and that certainly is important when we're considering a story like the Samaritan woman's
1: story oh absolutely i uh oh i I often cringe when that's the text of the sermon because I just think ah oh, i I could be really bad. <laughs> So uh, you lay out uh, the really bad stuff, um, the the interpretations that go beyond the information in the text and create this woman that's often portrayed as a sexual sinner going, I mean, you you give like church fathers like Tertullian and Origen and Chrysostom and on up through. Can you just lay out for us the evidence um, of what you and I would consider to be unhelpful and incorrect interpretation of what the biblical text says about the Samaritan woman.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4 has that famous reference, infamous perhaps reference to the fact that she's been married five times and the man she has now is not her husband. And from the earliest interpretation that we have of the story in the 3rd century, Tertullian, um, the woman's been defined as an adulterer because of that reference to her marital history. Um, sometimes she's called a prostitute. That's another very early interpretation that persists through the church up to the current day. Um, john calvin called her a disobedient wife who forced her husbands to divorce her and then of course because she keeps getting married again um interpreters assume that she it's her own selfish desires and her lust that is encouraging her to seek out more relationships that interpretation of her marital history then gets applied to the whole story so we get She goes to the well at noon because she's a social outcast and the other women rejected her. Um, She's ashamed of herself. And so she lies to Jesus to cover up her own sin. Right. She says, I'm not married. Well, no, she's not married because she's living in sin. And so she's trying to hide her own condition. Um, And even farther than that, I would say interpreters, because they have this negative assessment of the woman, they interpret everything she does in the story through that lens. So she's rude to Jesus. She is ignorant. Her questions show that she doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. And then we end up with a Samaritan woman who, and there's nothing for us to learn there except what not to do.
1: <laughs> oh, it's, that's so true. And uh, and of course, that's that's really not, what is going on? I mean, it's just, it's really not going on. Other than the fact that she did say, I've had, or Jesus saying to her, I've had five husbands and the one I'm with now is not my husband. So what, what do you do with that? How do you rehabilitate our interpretation so that we really hear what she has to say and what Jesus has to say about discipleship uh, through her example? Yeah, I think for one thing, we can
2: question our own assumptions about marriage and sexuality. I think we tend to bring um, for us today, we bring a very contemporary lens, um, thinking about marriage as relationship, as falling in love, as seeking a deep connection. And of course, that's not what was happening in the first century for a woman in that time her entire family was involved with arranging a marriage. She was getting married for the benefit of her community um, and for her own survival. It was, um, there were women who could survive on their own in first century society, but it wasn't easy. And so, a woman um, like the Samaritan woman, I would imagine, she needed that male centered household in order to
1: survive. Um, the most most women married. uh, And of course they married men. So most men married. I mean, it just sort of, that was, um, and one of the things that I have heard, I'd love your thoughts on this is that she was barren. And so men just kept divorcing her. And my thought is, you know, it might be the second husband might think, you know what, I'll be able to raise a family with this woman but the fifth husband, I mean, <laughs> either he's incredibly confident, but you know, you take on the care of this extra mouth to feed and body to clothe and all of that. It's a long shot, right? If she's not been able to have kids with these four other husbands, so it all, it's moreover, people didn't necessarily divorce for barrenness, um, and so with if you were Greco-Roman, you adopted um and within the jewish community they had um some other options alongside adoption which I don't know that they did as much so anyway what are your thoughts on that claim that she was barren
2: I totally agree with you Lynn I think it's there's no reason people would have kept men would have kept marrying her if she had a reputation for barrenness so uh, in fact in a lot of the legends of the early church um, she has several children who traveled with her on missionary journeys through the world after her conversion um yeah so I don't think that she was, baron um i don't think that she was an adulteress i think that's another reason that people would not continue
1: (laughs) marrying her (laughs) oh of course you you i mean augustine puts in now it wouldn't necessarily apply to her 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 status in in society but you you couldn't marry or go ahead and marry uh someone who had previously been convicted of adultery so i mean you so she commits adultery again four times. And so the fifth husband thinks, nope, you know, I'll keep her only to myself. You know, she won't want any other man. I mean, it just, it kind of boggles the mind uh, with with that. Yeah. The the number five is, is a big number for any woman to have been married Mm -hmm. that many times. Yeah. And so I think sometimes the number is allegorized. What do you think about the number five, how it functions in the in the story? Uh, yeah, I think that that's a, a really
2: interesting, and it's an idea that allegori- allegorical interpretation has a long history as well, um, going back to origin as early in the third century. Um, And of course, John's gospel has so much symbolism in it that you're almost primed to look for an allegory in um, her five marriages with her sixth man. I don't find any of the suggestions that have been made for what those five marriages might represent to be particularly convincing. Um, it's very unusual to find so many marriages for any one person in the Roman Empire. I think there are only a couple of examples of sort of very high ranking, wealthy aristocrats who have that number of marriages.
1: But I I can only think of one. Yeah, I think of Agrippa, you know, and he was widow, he was a widower twice, and he divorced twice. And he was Married to his fifth wife when he passed away. I don't know of of anyone else. Whereas married two or three times, that happens because uh, the death rate was so was so high, or life was so precarious. So, so what do you do with that? I'm I'm going down this rabbit trail, but I do. You know, the five, it's a big number. You know, and I think that's why a lot of times uh, we kind of believe, well, there must be something wrong with her, right? Because this is something must something must be wrong. So how do, how do you handle that? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So
2: for me, I think that um, whatever that her marital history is representing in this story, it's showing us something about how difficult life was in the first century and I think that that's an important element that we can take away from it, um, whether they were allegorical husbands or literal husbands, to have this story that represents a woman with five marriages and a sixth relationship on top of that um, is indicative of the difficulties of life. And that's something that you don't hear a lot of interpreters commenting on,
1: right? So- No, they don't. I, I agree with you. And I wanna talk about the the man who you're with now, you're not married to. I wanna get your thoughts on that. Uh, but before we leave the five husbands, I was thinking, sort of one of my ideas is that Jesus has special knowledge of her past that he he couldn't just guess it, right? I mean, because it is so unusual. And that's what she says. He told me everything I've ever done. And it we in, can interpret that as all the sin you ever did. But that's not what Jesus says. It's just... He he knows what I've done, my history. How could he know that unless he's a prophet? Because he's not, no one's going to just guess five, right? That's just too high of a number. So she knows that he has special knowledge of her. I think similar to his special knowledge of the past of Nathanael in chapter one. Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You know, and Nathanael says, how did you know me? Oh, well, I saw him sitting under the fig tree. You know, it's, Whoa and so that it's that kind of knowledge that jesus has that demonstrates that he's a prophet at the very least that that uh excites her but then we've got this you know and the sixth one is not your husband so what do you do with that yeah yeah i one
2: of my Okay, when I say my favorite, I mean, my favorite to sort of play around with and think about is um, one modern retelling that makes the sixth man into her boyfriend that she's living with. And then it it turns into this romance story. She's going to go home and convict him and marry him. Yay. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So. There are, of course, there are a lot of ways we could interpret the sixth man. We just don't have enough information in the story to figure out exactly what's happening here. Um, But I would say that while formal marriage was preferred for Jews, probably for Samaritans, though we don't really have a lot of information on the Samaritans in the first century, um, and certainly for Romans, not everybody had the legal right to marry. So in the Roman Empire, um, Roman citizens could not marry non-citizens like the Samaritan woman, a slave or a freed slave could not marry someone who was freeborn. Um, Within Judaism, and probably Samaritans as well, priests could not marry women who were not from priestly families. So there are a lot of places, a lot of um, potential relationships that legally they would not have the right to marry. So there were um, well established traditions of informal marriage that people would choose to cohabit with each other. They treated each other as husband and wife. They were loyal to each other like husbands and wives. They had a shared household, but they couldn't legally marry. It was not um, it was socially acceptable, morally acceptable, legally acceptable to have these relationships um, in the cases where people could not legally marry. And I think it's very likely that for a woman in Samaria, that a relationship like that could be beneficial to her family if it's um for instance a freed slave who has wealth and can contribute to the well-being of her family if it's a roman citizen maybe a soldier who um is occupying the local area, that could be a really good connection for her family and something that could benefit them. And so I would see her sixth relationship, like her five marriages, however we interpret them, as a relationship that is for the good of her community and for the good of her own family. Uh, Yeah.
1: We know too that, um, and I'm tracking with you in all of those, and just to throw another possibility in there, we know that Jews, unlike uh, the Romans also allow bigamy. Yes, yes. And so, so uh, it could be that there is a second wife, mm-hmm. which, that she is quote unquote, the second wife. And in all of the cases that you outlined and the one that I just mentioned, I don't think Jesus would call that a marriage based on what he, he has uh, said in other places in the gospels. And so and, and she seems to agree with him, like, you're right, technically, this isn't a marriage in the way we think about it. But that doesn't mean that I'm living in a moral life. It It's, um, but they, yeah, they're both kind of agreeing, this is how our culture has set it up. And, you know, I think what you've highlighted is some of the, um, uh, the culture was so highly stratified in the ancient world. And. And that's, that's not always, or maybe never, God's best, right? And so she's living into a, a broken culture that is saying, look, you, you can't actually marry this person because you're not worthy, but you can live with them. And especially like a concubine, I mean, she could be charged with adultery, um, but she didn't have the benefits yes. of a wife. And so, you know, lots of things are stacked against women at this time. They could not initiate divorce uh, by themselves. They needed a guardian to a male guardian to be able to lodge their uh, divorce papers, for lack of a better word, in a court. Um, And so, you know, there's this idea that that this Samaritan woman was like Liz Taylor, who just has all these amazing husbands, who herself is, you know, gorgeous and wealthy and all that, and then has all these husbands, really couldn't be farther from the truth. Yes,
2: yes, absolutely. This is a woman who's a real survivor, who is living um, in a difficult world and making it through. And I think that The part of the story that maybe doesn't get enough attention in interpretations is the reaction of her neighbors to her announcement. Uh, They don't say, oh, you social outcast, go away. Why are you talking to us? They believe her right away. They say, oh, yes, we will go out and meet this man who has told you everything you've done. Um, Their acceptance and their willingness to believe because of her word really shows that she is a woman of honor and importance, um, significance within her local community.
1: Um, no, yeah, I, I, that, that to me is the really the compelling argument that she can't be as this awful outcast sexual sinner and then go back to her town and they all say, men and women alike, yep, we believe you on something so important. And this is a great time to kind of segue into what Jesus tells her is, incredibly theologically rich. So talk a little bit about that and how we can see her as this very thoughtful disciple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think that's the most exciting thing about this woman in the Gospel of John. The Gospel really presents her as a model for Christians to follow. Um, in terms of the way she interacts with Jesus, responds to Jesus, and then witnesses to Jesus in her community. I mean, she has the longest conversation with Jesus in the Gospel of John. Mostly in John's Gospel, people start talking to Jesus, and then Jesus kind of takes over (laughs) and goes into a long monologue. Um, But this woman stays active in the conversation all the way through. And she even directs the... She directs the direction. She directs the conversation, right? Um, After she's recognized Jesus as a prophet, she turns the conversation to the issue of worship. And where should the people of God worship God in Jerusalem or in Samaria? Um, And right there, that question that she asks about worship is not a throwaway question. That is a question that gets right at the heart of the divide between the Jews and Samaritans. And it's really the question of who are the people of God? Because that's what these two groups are disagreeing on.
1: Um, yeah, you're right. We tend to think of the Samaritans as the uh, those syncretists who left the one true God. And from a theological standpoint and reading the Old Testament, okay, you know, I, I can get that. But in the moment when Jesus lived, that was not their self-identity. They were saying, and they have the five books of Moses, right? So they are using, Quote unquote scripture, just a different canon, if you will, a smaller canon. So that, yeah, they are claiming, no, 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 we've got it right. You Jews got it wrong. Yeah. So you're right. That's a very honest question that she's asking. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And Jesus responds in a very honest way as well, saying, "Um, actually, big news here. (laughs) There's a new identity for God's people. And it's not in Jerusalem or in Samaria, it's rather in spirit and truth. Um, this woman hears this grand theological revolution <laughs> it is, is announced to her and she brings it out to her people and witnesses to them about it. And um, yeah. You know,
1: you know who doesn't get it, which is amazing to me? Um, the disciples. Yes. <laughs> They've already been in the town and they haven't been spreading the word that, hey, the Matthias is here. And they come back and they're just kind of puzzled. But they don't actually see the Samaritans or this woman as someone they need to talk with. And uh, yeah, so what is Jesus, you know, we, we kind of vilify the woman and her manipulation of their, of Jesus and her conversation, but we maybe don't spend enough time on really who are the clueless people in this story, which is his very own disciples. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. uh,
2: The disciples come back from buying food and they see Jesus speaking to this woman and their question is, oh, what the heck? Why are you talking to her? Uh, And of course, we hear the answer as the readers of the story. We know why he's talking to her. He's talking to her to share his identity with her uh, and so that she will realize uh, who Jesus is and what his coming to the Samaritan village means for their people The disciples are more concerned with food and with eating than with sowing the word, as Jesus' parable there at the end um, indicates. And I really love the placement of Jesus telling the disciples, Look around you, the fields are ripe for the harvest. And here come the woman bringing her Samaritan villagers with her um, to be part of this harvest. And I think that the placement of that between the woman leaving Jesus and bringing back her villagers. she's one of the sowers there, right? She and Jesus are sowing the word among the Samaritans and the disciples need to get with the picture
1: and be yes, part yes. of it. No, that yeah, that's, that's very compelling. Yes. Well, we've thought about these things. Uh, in your book, you show us that we aren't the first to have seen uh, really what's going on. Talk a little bit about the history of interpretation where the Samaritan woman's real virtues uh, are, are highlighted. Yeah, there is
2: a pretty good history of women's interpretation of this story that sets aside the question of her sexuality entirely and focuses more on her actions in the story and her words in the story. So Marie, uh, my French is terrible, so I know I'm going to butcher this, but Marie d'Enterre in the 16th century, she was a reformer and she was a preacher herself She went out in the streets and taverns of Geneva preaching um, the message of the reformers. And she identified the Samaritan woman as a reformer and said, look, her message about worshiping in spirit and truth, that's what I'm preaching too. This woman's a preacher. I'm a preacher. And so we see in Marie's reading, um, the Samaritan woman is a preacher of the gospel and a model for women to follow. And that just continues to be taught by women interpreters. What's really impressive about these women in the early centuries of women's interpretation, women's words were not preserved and passed on. So each woman interpreter had to come up with a new interpretation and their interpretations just line up over and over. So Margaret fell in 17th century England. Uh, we get. um uh, One of my favorites, Harriet Livermore, in um, the 19th century, she said, look, the Samaritan woman was a preacher. She preached publicly. If a woman did that in my time, Harriet Livermore's time, she would be thrown into an asylum for being a nutcase. But we should do it anyway, because this is the gospel of Jesus. Let's preach it. And so we've got this long string of women's interpretation that really focuses in on the end of the story, on the effect what the Samaritan woman does in her effectiveness as an evangelist of the gospel and uses that to call women and men to to be good disciples of Jesus, to be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus.
1: And, you know, and so as I am listening to you talk, I think, why, why then do we keep getting this story wrong? And not only a Samaritan woman, there are other women in the in the Bible, we just get their stories wrong all the time. So what are questions that today we should be asking? I mean, you and I have have spent our lives studying in an academic venue, you know, the New Testament. So we um, we have a little bit of an advantage in that regard of understanding the historical context, but this is the word of God to the people of God. So all of us can, uh, Read well to uh, well enough to be able to understand uh, what God has for us in the in the biblical text. So what questions do you think we should be asking, or how can we read the Samaritan woman's story better, more faithfully? Yeah, I think that the first step is to really resist
2: sexualizing or stereotyping women in scripture. It's so consistent, right? Uh, Mary Magdalene, um, Bathsheba, uh, all of these women through scripture, just they get read through the lens of sex. And that gives us a particular starting point for interpreting their stories. And it gives us all the answers to our questions before we even begin. So I think we need to resist that. Unless marriage or sex are explicitly present in the story, we really need to be careful with reading it in when sex and marriage are explicitly present, we also need to be careful not to bring our own assumptions about what that means to the text. So learning about women's lives in the ancient world is a really important and useful tool for giving a good social and cultural context and understanding what women might've been doing. And then third, I would say, look for the ways that women actually contribute actively to the narratives that they're in. Uh, we, because of our starting points, we can tend to overlook the words that women say or the changes that they affect within the biblical stories. Um, but let's look for those. Let's pay attention to those and really think seriously about the implications of those rather than starting with our own assumptions about what women's lives were like and what women are able to do or not to do.
1: Oh, yeah. I I completely uh, agree with you on that. And I I think maybe I would add one more assumption that we should make, which is that these uh, biblical characters, such as a Samaritan woman, are um, are put in scripture for both men and women to model their behavior on. And I think at times everybody assumes, well, let's all be like David, but nobody says, let's all be like Deborah. Because men don't want to be like Deborah. But Deborah is actually a role model of discipleship, you know. And Mary Magdalene is a model of discipleship for both men and women. And when we sort of say, well, women can only, the women in the Bible are only role models for women today. Uh, we, we really shortchange yes. their um, impact that they should have on the church.
2: Absolutely. I, that is so important. We shouldn't just be preaching about women on Mother's Day, but it should be a regular rotation in our churches um, and for men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies to really pay attention to these women in scripture. Um, they're not there arbitrarily or
1: accidentally. <laughs> they're there to teach us and we can learn from them. That's right. And they're not just there for you and I, they're there for our uh, male friends and brothers and fathers and uncles and all of that. That they too can uh, can model their lives um, uh, as faithful the faithful female disciples did. Yeah, yeah. Well, is there um, one particular uh, one more as we close? One more particular interpretation. That, that you came across as you were writing this book uh, that you thought, oh yeah, this is so insightful. I just love this.
2: Oh my goodness, that is a fantastic question. Uh, okay, one thing that um, I found a number of peop- interpreters from John Chrysostom onwards, uh, comparing the Samaritan woman with Nicodemus And showing how they're actually direct opposites, and it's not the opposite we would expect. Uh, So, Nicodemus, this important Jewish leader, very educated, very important, socially powerful, he comes to Jesus at night and he leaves asking his questions without belief in Jesus, apparently, in John 3. The Samaritan woman is the opposite in every way, right? She's a woman, she's a Samaritan, she's Therefore, assumed to not be as knowledgeable, um, not able to converse with Jesus. But she meets Jesus in the middle of the day and she leaves in belief. And I think that there's a verse in John 3, um, sort of at the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus says, you know, those who are in darkness stay in the darkness because they don't want their deeds to be seen. But others will come to the light and bring their deeds to the light. And the woman does that. (laughs) She brings her deeds to the light and she is seen. Um, And I love that contrast that so many interpreters have brought out to show Nicodemus isn't the model for us to follow. It's the Samaritan woman.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you're, oh, that's, that's excellent. And John is careful as he pulls together all these stories. They are supposed to talk to each other that way. And the reader is to catch that. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Well, the book is the Samaritan woman's story, reconsidering John four after the hashtag church two. So Karin, this, I'm excited for this. It comes out when, February, is that right? Yes, yeah, so early in 2022. Great Valentine's oh, okay. Day gift. Pardon? A great
2: Valentine's Day gift.
1: <laughs> there you go. I love that. It's a great idea. We'll, I'll file that one away. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much. I it, it just was delightful to chat with you today. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to another episode of The Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology and ministry. If you enjoyed this week's episode, be sure to share it with a friend and hit subscribe so that you will be notified every week when we release a brand new episode. We've included a link in today's podcast description so that you can pre-order Dr. Karin Reader's new book, The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Hashtag Church 2, that will be released by IVP Academic in February 2022.